Hello, uh, this is Father Chris Rodriguez, again, live from our studio here at uh, Trinity Episcopal Church in Vera Beach. Today, this is week eight of our nine-week series on the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. So today we're going to tackle uh, letters 27, 28, and 29. Mm. But before we, that's right, right? Yep. Okay, right. good. Before we do that, we're going to uh, go ahead and pray. So the Lord be with you. And also with you. Lord God, we thank you for this day, for bringing us all here together safely. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of studying this book, for the privilege of gathering together uh, to learn and be challenged by the words that Lewis challenges us with. We, we pray, Lord, for the protection of St. Michael and our spiritual warfare against Satan, and uh, just make us mindful of the, uh, of the grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to protect us in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, letter 27, I have the, uh, it's kind of funny, the things you pick up on. Father Gritter wrote the, the uh, synopses this week. It's kind of funny, the things you synopse and things, is that a word? The things I synopse. Oh, really? Synopsize and what you synopsize. Oh, yeah. Is that even well, a word? I, I, I don't even know. I don't Why don't you read it? You're, you're, sure. You're so you can always tell mine because mine are about three sentences shorter. Uh, you, you seem to pull a lot of these things out of this, which is really good. Well, uh, the synopsis for letter 27. Yep. Uh, in this letter, Screwtape advises Wormwood to attack the prayer life of the patient by seeking to capitalize on distraction or have the patient overly spiritualize his prayers. Screwtape also recommends convincing the patient that prayers are not efficacious on the grounds that whatever he prayed for would have happened with, it's a typo, with or without prayer. The goal is to render the patient's prayer life inert or to get him to stop praying altogether. So it's really just a, basically an attack on his prayer life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, let, try these different techniques that you know, kind of pull you away from it. Right. Uh, you know, follow or you know, try to combat your distraction. Or, you know, it's, it's just, and we've all been there, right? I mean, prayer life is one of those things that it can be really hard to maintain in a, uh, in a regular fashion. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think about I think it's, an, you know, it's interesting. It's a really, really big, interesting topic to me because, I mean, for lots of reasons that he covers, actually, in this letter, I think, pretty well. For example, the opening point here is that the patient, right, discovers that he is, his mind is wandering, he's distracted in his prayers. Hmm. And, and Screwtape's like, yeah, man, we got him. We distracted him. And Screwtape's like, you stupid man. Because, the, 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 because the, the patient has realized he's distracted in his prayer life. And so once you realize you're distracted or your mind wanders, which it does, right? That he actually, Wormwood's counsel is, no, man, you're, you're missing the point here. That he's now realized his prayer life is not what it should be. And it's actually kind of making him a little humble, mm-hmm. you know, and making him, making him, um, making him realize how, how challenging it is to maintain a prayer life and be always kind of vigilant. I think, you know, prayer is one of those interesting things that, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, the Holy Spirit tells us what we need to pray for before we ask, mm-hmm. right? The Holy Spirit intercedes for us when our prayers are not sufficient, right? Or negligent or ineffective or forgotten, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, so, and we don't have to, you know, we're not going to, we don't have to convince God of anything. He's God. He knows everything. So the idea of prayer at all is a really fascinating topic to me. And I think the, the point which Lewis is kind of driving at here is the idea that the whole point of prayer is it, it, is it, it turns the human heart towards God, right? You're not trying to like convince God of something. 
and we get into this whole atemporality, which I get to that in a minute. Yeah. But the idea of aligning your heart and your will towards God is the purpose of prayer, mm-hmm. right? I mean, God tells us to pray daily, but he also knows what we need before we ask it. So it's one of those kind of confusing topics. And I think what Wormwood is driving at here, rather, is, or screw tape rather, is that what we, what, we don't, what we don't want prayer to do is what it's actually happening with this man here because he realizes his prayers are distracted. Mm-hmm. We don't want it to be just basically an exercise in aligning his will towards God's will. No, that's absolutely true. And distraction, I mean, distracted prayers, I, I don't know if I've ever had a completely undistracted prayer unless I'm reading prayers like doing morning prayer or evening prayer. Otherwise, right. you know, your mind wanders impossibly. Um, right. One of the quotes in the book, uh, Screwtape says this, he says, uh, and you know how to deal with distractions as they come up. His advice to Wormwood is: when this or any other distraction crosses his mind, you ought to encourage him to thrust it away by sheer willpower, and to try to continue the normal prayer as if nothing happened. You know, one of, one of the piece of advice I was given in seminary on uh, preaching, the one class I had on mm-hmm. it was: uh, if there is a disruption, you know, so if you're preaching and somebody, whatever, there's some kind of disruption in the somebody walks in late yeah. or something. Yeah. Acknowledge it before moving on, or else everybody else won't stop thinking about it. Hmm. You know, like so, so in seminary, I was told like if you just if you just power through, everybody's thoughts are going to be looking at you, waiting for you to address it, or they're going to be you know thinking about whatever the event was. But it was you know this, this, the professor said you know just just say hey you know we had this brute distraction, let's all get over it, and we're going to move on past it. Hmm. And I think that's kind of you know that that's that plays into kind of what they're trying not to have him do. Um, and there's a lot of theories on distraction too, and why, why it is like why we feel so distracted. I mean, a lot of a lot of people are wondering if our culture is more distracted now or easier distracted, following rabbit trails and following different thoughts than than it had been before. Hmm. Uh, have you come across anything like that? Or well, I mean, you could say social media makes you more distracted. Sure. That people in, in the immediacy of information makes you more distractible. That's certainly probably. Probable, but I think you know you, people are people. So whether you're you know some 10th century monk who is trying to pray and is distracted by who knows what, right? <laughs> Something you had for lunch, or you're a 21st century person who's got access to these things and and being bombarded by information. I think it's just part of our humanity and our fallenness that we are easily distracted in our prayers. The thing is, though, God knows that. Mm. Right, and so the point is, you know, I think the important thing. One thing he says, Screwtape says here is this is actually, this actually struck me. He says this is the end of paragraph number one. Anything, even a sin, which has the total effect of moving him, the patient, close up to the enemy, God, makes it against makes against us in the long run. In other words, that's the last sentence of paragraph one uh, of letter twenty-seven. Like essentially, what Screwtape is. Is challenging Worman. It's like, look, don't forget that anything which this person does, if it draws them closer to the Lord, even if it's a sin, right, a, repent, a sin that's repented of, that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if a person's prayer life, you know, my, there's periods of my life where my prayer life is just hard, mm-hmm. difficult, you know? Mm-hmm. I still do it. I don't always feel it, you know? Mm-hmm. But I always do it because I know it is my duty as a priest to do morning and evening prayer every day, which I do. But the effect of me going, man, my prayer life is really suffering, or my life with my, one of my kids, or my wife, or whomever, to be made aware of that deficiency actually draws me closer to the Lord, because it makes me lean on Him more. Mm-hmm. You know? It does. That's fascinating to me. I mean, I, I think as Christians, we sometimes beat ourselves up too much, that we have to sort of, you know, check all the boxes and do it all right. And that's actually not the point. The point is actually, on the contrary, to always be 
leaning more and more on God's grace. I also want to make one quick point, too. And I, this is actually, um, as I've gotten a little bit older and uh, hopefully more mature and wiser, but that's, that's a debatable point. But uh, it says here, you know, this, um, and, and this is the middle of paragraph two. Uh, he, he, God, has definitely told them to pray for their daily bread and the recovery of the sick. He said, you will, of course, conceal from him the fact that a prayer for a daily bread interpreted in a spiritual sense is really just as crudely petitionary as it is in any other sense. In other words, when, when Jesus tells us, when you pray, pray this way, mm-hmm. he says, pray for your daily bread. It's practical, mm-hmm. you know? It's a, it's a practical and it's immediate, you know? Lord, give me, give me, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. I mean, it's all, like, incredibly just just help me now. Mm-hmm. And so in other words, it's always drawing your heart and your spirit towards m- relying minute, and minute, minute by minute more and more on, on God mm-hmm. and less on stuff that's all out here, you know? Yeah, it just, it just brings, it, brings it home again. Not, not, it, it reminded me, it's interesting, because mm. on that same quote, um, he said, uh, you know, on the seemingly pious ground that prays in communion with God is true prayer. Right. Humans can often be learned to direct disobedience, right? Just to what you're saying, they can. And one of the ways I was thinking about that is something, and um, I, I could be very wrong about this, but it reminded me of uh, what we learned in um, seminary about cataphatic versus apophatic prayers. Mm-hmm. So cataphatic prayers are prayers that have content. You know, they're, you're you're using words to communicate with God, or, or images, or symbols, or ideas. There's something to them. Right. You're you're bringing something to God. Whereas this idea of the apophatic prayers are like what you would think of an Eastern mysticism, where you're just like, you're saying, um, right? You're chanting things, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and you're trying to empty your mind of everything and just kind of commune with God in whatever sense that is. Mm. And um, not being a mystic and, and understanding that I don't understand you know, all of how that works, it seems to me that the prayer life, the prayer life that is demonstrated in Scripture, is cataphatic. It's absolutely bringing things to God. Jesus says, not "When you to feel Him, when you pray, here's how you do it: Our Father who art in heaven." It's it's yeah. simple and basic and practical. Mm-hmm. The, I agree with you. The the idea of apophatic prayer, which is basically a fancy way of saying emptying your mind, you know, and kind of communing with nature and all this stuff, that is so incredibly dangerous. Yeah, and and it's so incredibly lonely and impractical. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, you're gonna, the universe doesn't care about you. The universe doesn't have a, the universe, I mean, God does. Yeah. But, you know, you're just trying to empty your mind of thought and sort of just, I don't know. And it could work against I'm also not a mystic, so. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, neither of us have the personality for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that's but, right. You know, but, but, you know, part of it, too, though, is when you pray, a lot of the things that come up as, there's a difference between distractions and mind wandering. Right? Oh, yeah. Distractions are things that you put in front of yourself. Like 88% of people watch TV with a second screen. So they have their TV, but then they're always on their iPads or their phones. I mean, 88% of the time. I do that. I, do, I, do, I absolutely do that, too. Uh, when we're in pub, you know, line in public, you know, what's the first thing we do? We pull out our phones and we start scrolling. Like, that's distraction, right? That's actively doing something. But mind-wandering, I think, is actually different. Because in prayer life, a lot of times, you'll be praying and something, something important might pop up in yes. your mind. Something that you need to work on. Um, you know, some, maybe some sin or character flaw or failing that you have. Uh, sometimes it's something um, you, you can celebrate or thank God for, but those things, you know, to try to knock those things down for centering prayer uh, could be working against the Holy Spirit about the things you're supposed to be praying I about. totally agree with you. The idea, of, the idea of being with God is not emptying your mind. It's actually having your mind filled with what God wants you to do, right? Yeah. I mean, if you sit down, if you sit down with your wife or one of your children, you don't sit down and go, 
and to commune with them, you actually just speak to them. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. how you do it. And so why would it be different communing with God? Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, one other thing I thought was really cool, he talks about this idea of prayer. And this is actually something which I struggled with when I was younger. Not anymore, but I, do now, I did when I was younger. And the idea of prayer, like you pray to God, and if he answers your, you know, first of all, prayer, we tend to say, we tend to say if prayer is, uh, when we ask God for something, right, either do something or not do something, or help me or whatever it is, whatever it might be, petitionary prayer, asking for something. When, they, when the answer is yes, we go, yeah, praise report, you know, yeah. the Lord answered my prayer. But the reality is, you know, no and wait, which are typically the answers, as far as I can tell, are also answers to prayer. They might not be what you want, but they are answers to prayer. And, and the thing which he says here is, um, I thought was fascinating. He says, a lot of people will they'll pray, and if the answer is yes, they'll say, uh, it's because, um, what does he say? That, um, well, I lost my train of thought here. Well, um, well just, you're yeah, talking about the I heads I win, tails you win. That's it, that was it, yes. Yeah. The, uh, if the thing he prays for doesn't happen, mm. then that is one more proof that petitionary prayers don't work. Right. If it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see some kind of physical causes which led up to it. Mm. You know, heads I win, tails you lose. I mean, there's no, there's no way to, right? Because again, it's not an experiment. It, right. There's not a control for prayer. There's not, if I hadn't prayed, right. this is the scenario we can live in. Right. It's faith. Right. It's faith. The one thing, thank you for that, yeah. that you picked up on I wanted to yeah. talk about. One thing he mentions here in, in paragraph, this is actually really, this was big for me when I first read this book 20 years ago. Paragraph five, maybe? Um, he talks about, so he talks about human beings, so human beings are temporal, right? we live in time, we age, we kind of go through moment by moment, okay? And then, um, and then we pray, and we assume that like we're praying and God's going to change something to make our prayers effective or not, right? So we're kind of trying to, whether we want to admit this or not, we're really trying to convince God or persuade God or at least make our our efforts known, but we, how we would like things to go, right? That's what sure. we typically do. That's what I do. If I'm, but what he says here, and this is actually really so important, that God is, of course, is outside of time. Let me show you something right here. He says, he, um, it may be replied that some, <laughs> I love this, it may be replied that some meddlesome human writers, notably Boethius, have let this secret out, that, um, that God is atemporal. God is outside of time. What that means, let me back up here, the total, um, that, that paragraph before, that creation in its entirety operates at every point of space and time, or that rather their, their kind of consciousness forces them to en- encounter the whole, mm. self-consistent creative act as a series of successive events. Well, all that's to say, we see time as a matter of past, present, and future, right? God does not see time that way. When, when, when Moses meets God on the mountain, right, and he says, what's your name, right, and he says, I am, right, it's kind of a, it's a illogical construction, we say I am, but it's, it's actually not even, in the Hebrew original and in the Greek, it's, it's not a real uh, linguistic construction, it's nonsense, right, I am, I isness, it's a continuous word, and the point being, when God says I am, he's saying, I just am existence, I am being, right, mm-hmm. so God does not exist in the past, present, and future, we do, he is all over the whole thing. And this guy, Boethius, says, or he was, Boethius, who I actually looked this up when I read this 20-something years ago. Boethius was a 6th century Roman senator. And he said, uh, and Thomas Aquinas picked this up, which is where I got it from. Boethius said, you know, the Christian God is a God that sees all things at once. Mm-hmm. 
So you say to yourself, okay, well, I'm, you know, in some way, what I experience as tomorrow or tonight is not to say it's already determined, but God already is there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So God is, God does not, it's not like, you know, if I'm trying to convince you of something and I'm going to try to convince Father Josh to, I don't know, do something for me. Do his work. Do your work. <laughs> yeah, do my work. Yeah, do your work. And other people are trying to convince you and we're trying to get, yeah, yeah, sort of yeah. persuade you to do things. Yeah. But what if, but what if, I don't want to say the matter is pre-decided because I don't believe in predestination. I mean, once in Christ I do, but not in that God is like, God is atemporal. So he already is in the future already. So in, in, from God's perspective, he, he hears my prayers, but he also hears the prayers of everything else and all the other circumstances that have, will, will take place for these things to come to fruition. One thing we do know, right, one thing we do know, absolutely, is all things work to good for those who trust in the Lord, right, who trust in the Lord and call upon him. So we know that God is faithful, even when the answer to prayer is no or wait, which is frequently the case. Mm-hmm. From our perspective, it looks like a, a negative, but from God's perspective, and which is the real perspective, the, the situation is very different. I'm not making a whole lot of no, sense. No, no, it makes perfect sense. It's hard because... Everything is laid out at once. Yeah. And, you know, C.S. Lewis, was it a screw tape, I guess, describes it as like having all these different points of things that God takes into consideration as he shapes and molds the world around us or, or as he's laid it out from the beginning. You right. know, I mean, all of those things are woven into the fabric of what we experience. Right. Which is just, I mean, it's, it's impossible to It's understand. impossible. It's like I said to somebody, maybe it was you yesterday, yeah. it's like the goldfish trying to anticipate what the, what's life, out, life outside the goldfish bowl. Yeah. Right. Or it's like my dog, Max, trying to anticipate what time would look like. I mean, God is not in time and we are. So it's kind of, it's an impossible thing to get your mind around. I once drew a picture, and I probably sold this from somebody, um, of a number line. So like here's, uh, draw it, but then we wouldn't have it on camera. Here is the beginning of my, my birth and my death, whenever that, I know what my birth is. I don't know when my death is, but it's sooner than later, <laughs> right? Sooner than it was yesterday. <laughs> that's right. But, that's okay. But, uh, but I'm, it's, it's a number line. And so because I'm a temporal being, I'm a person in time, I am somewhere on that number line. I don't know where. I know where I started. I don't know where I'm going to end. But so I experience that as a sequence of events, but God is actually outside of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So he sees past, present, and future all simultaneously, right? And to say that God is in the past, present, and future is almost to impose temporality on him. He's outside the number line. He's outside the goldfish bowl. Mm-hmm. He sees things differently than we do. And I think once you kind of get that on your mind, you can say how you can say, reconcile how God knows what we need before we ask, but we also are called to pray without ceasing. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm blabbering a lot. What no, do you, no, what do you no, think? No, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, I really took this down a whole a whole rabbit trail of um, this idea of free will and prayer because it struck me, and I, you know, I'm happy to be corrected by Reformed theologians, but it struck me when I was going to my seminary, you know, the idea of prayer seemed a little silly if, um, you know, if we are, if we are ro- living robots, right? If God has so constructed the world that everything that we do is not only predetermined or, or, or foreordained or seen, you know, like... Um, you know, seen before. Because right. Scripture does use words like predestination. It does say things like vessels built for destruction and vessels built for wrath. But then prayer seems totally unnecessary. You know, like, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, being a kid and playing with action figures. Right. You know, like, you know, you don't command your action figures 
to pray, you know, like you're pulling the strings or puppets or whatever it is. And right, so right. that idea, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. And the, the arguments I've heard for prayer from those circles are, well, we're commanded to, so we just do it. It's like, okay, well, that's, I mean, that's fair. It doesn't make sense, but that's fair. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, God is just making us pray. Which, again, it, it kind of, to me, negates the whole relational factor of prayer. Right. And then, no counter-argument for libertarian free will, which I don't think anybody really believes in. That's the idea that every decision you make has no influencing factors on it whatsoever. On it or as a... On the, on the decision you're making. Well, that's just not true. That's absurd. It's absurd, right? You know, our, Oops. we're limited by What's our... What's really absurd is my microphone's falling off. Oh, I hope, it, I hope that just happened because it happened earlier, you'd yeah. be in trouble. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but you know, that idea too, and, and you, don't need to have, you don't need to have one or the other. You know, God can exercise... God can have sovereignty without exercising it in the same degree, in the, in the same way, every time, and allow us to enter into periods of our, uh, presenting ourselves to him. It might almost be that God is different than we are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know? Anyhow, any, any questions or comments? Um, what do you think, Lee? Yeah, so Lee's comment is that there are people that stay away from politics. I'm just going to paraphrase for you, Lee, so correct me if I've missed something. That people will frequently stay out of politics, for example, because they, they assume that God has already appointed someone for a position of authority, for example, right? Um, or that we people sometimes will neglect prayer because God has already chosen what he's going to do. But I think that misses the whole point. I mean, the, the idea is, yeah, God has... It's hard, it's hard to describe because God is outside of time. All these different things. The prayers of people are effective, right? Mm-hmm. Scripture tells us. Does God have a plan in place for, uh, for things? Yes, but maybe it's because he knows that Lee Rogers, for example, is going to pray for such and such to occur. I mean, yeah, yeah it's... Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, I was going to do this thing already, and I did it through you. You right. know, I mean, that's just the way we think about it. That's why, yeah. you know, again, staying in our fishbowl and... and you know, humbly is that's right. Okay, I, I have what you have called me to do. You know, and I've also I also have in scripture what you said about hardening Pharaoh's heart or putting Joseph where he needed to be for his family in Genesis or all of these other circumstances that yeah, of course. God clearly put together. But it's like that's that's so far above our call. I really think those passages are there for assurance of God's control, but not for us to use to plan how we are to act. Right? Like God gives us how to act. Right. And then we just have assurance that He takes care of the way that things come together. That's right. And That's you know, right. to, to go beyond that is really going beyond the bounds of what Scripture clearly teaches. That's right. It's dangerous. Yeah. It can be. It can be. All right. What did, um, you, th- what did you think about this? Okay. Um, later in this, we can wrap up the chapter with this. Yeah, no but problem. He said, um, to regard, this is talking about uh, how we think about people who've come before us. To regard the ancient writer as a possible source of knowledge to anticipate that what he said could possibly modify your thoughts or behavior, this would be rejected as unutterably simple-minded. So it's basically reading philosophers, reading Christian theologians, reading the saints who have come before us just to kind of say, like, well, what was their world like? You know, what were they really thinking? What would their views have been if they had lived another 30 years? Right. And it's this thing of chronological snobbery, which mm-hmm. is his phrase in uh, his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. It's this right. idea of looking on the past and saying, you know, I know better and I can analyze your thoughts, and I can tell you where you were wrong or not wrong. Yeah. Uh, terms that we would use today are like backwards or medieval. Right. And the assumption is anything... Primitive, yeah. unscientific. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, you know... You can believe in religion, Lee Rogers, but I believe in science. That kind of stuff. Yeah, well, yeah, science... Which I do, actually. I mean, I taught it in graduate school, so I do believe in yeah. science, but I don't believe in... I mean, scientific method had some... 
pretty significant factors contributed to it with Robert Bacon, uh, you know, actually kind of form, being the father of modern science. I mean, people so, looking to discover the way that God did what he did. That was the whole motivation. That's exactly for right. The, the scientific method presumes the existence of God. So, but that's, anyway. that's a matter for another day. Yeah. All right. So let's look at uh, chapter number 28. Um, how about if I read it, even though I didn't write it? May I? <laughs> sure. It's funny because I got something very different from this, but that's okay. I'm only uh, letter 28. Screw tape begins this this letter, criticizing Wormwood for letting his patient remove himself from worldly friends, fall in love with a Christian woman, and thus far falling, failing at gaining a foothold with his spiritual attacks. Wormwood's only hope is to, to corrupt the patient is a long life in order to inflict him with dull monotony leading to a worldly attachment or despair. I loved this chapter. Mm -hmm. And you know what, I've read this book, I've read this book so many times, and I think now that I'm older than I was when I read it before, I, this really resonated with me. I don't know why it is. I do know why it is, it's because I'm an old goat. That's what I'm getting there. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that uh, the one thing in here which I thought was really, well, first thing, he says, screw tapes like, yeah, man, we're gonna, um, the war is going, and, screw, and Wor Wormwood is saying that, and Screwtape's like, no, man, don't be stupid. If you don't, you, you want this, you don't want this guy afraid to die. Mm -hmm. He says here, um, he says here, you don't want him worried about dying. You want him, you don't want him to be confronted with his own mortality. You want to lead him, I'm paraphrasing, you want to keep him sort of in the dark, right? He says here, um, uh, he will, if he were to die tonight, he will almost certainly be lost to us if he's killed tonight. Meaning, when a person, as in this case, this is actually the bombing of London during World War II, is the situation here that Lewis is talking about. And this young man, this patient, is probably, I don't know, in his early 20s or so, um, he's scared because he's afraid he's going to get blown up by the Germans in the London bombing, which is a real fear. And Screwtape says, no, don't, don't, don't let him even go there. You want to keep them sort of anodyne, right? You want to keep them not re being aware of their own mortality yeah. and confronting that because they might actually start thinking about really important stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and then this here I thought was so, uh, I, I, this just really struck me, and I'll, I'll share it with you at the end of, it's a long paragraph, paragraph one. Mm. Um, uh, they, of course, humans, do tend to regard death as the prime evil mm. and survival as the greatest good. But that is because we have taught them to do so. That fascinates me. Mm -hmm. It's true. I mean, think about, for example, I'm just going to say, wait a minute, with this virus, right? The COVID thing, I'll probably catch flack for this, but I'm going to say it. We, even in the church, we have been fearful of this COVID virus. Now, again, we've got to be cautious and not cavalier and respectful of people that are, you know, compromised immune systems and all that sort of thing. But we've actually put the fear of death above the worship of God in some cases. And so he says here, we have, we have trained, we have, we have trained them that the prime, e that the prime evil, um, death is the prime evil and survival is the greatest good. But that is because we have taught, hell has taught humans that that's the case. I found that to be fascinating. And, uh, and I'm not sure, um, I'm not, I guess because as, as I get older and, I'm, and my mortality is more salient than it was when I was like your age, for example, uh, you know, it's, you begin to think, well, okay, wait a minute. What is really the worst? What is the worst thing that can happen? Mm -hmm. It's not death, mm -hmm. right? It's separation from the Lord. 
And then he goes on to say, um, this, is the, uh, this is the enemy has guarded, this, I just think this is so insightful, and I've been really thinking about this. The enemy has guarded the patient from you, the first great wave of temptation. But if only he can be kept alive, you will have time itself for your ally. Listen to this. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity, maybe that's why this is resonating with me, or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. Isn't that something? Like you kind of get, and, and again, we, I think in, a, in the life of a parish, as a parish priest, you see this in your own people. People that are, if you're in, you know, when you kind of have gotten to the point in your career where you either have gotten where you wanted to be, mm-hmm. or, and you're like, okay, you kind of get a little complacent, or you're where you thought you should be and you're not there and you get angry. Mm-hmm. Either of those thing, two things make you focused on the present, right? And, and, um, and, and draw you away from the Lord. I mean, maybe I'm not... No, no, I, I, think I, see, I think I see exactly what you're saying. I mean, the two pitfalls, right? The idea of middle-aged prosperity, you know, what, what are the pitfalls of that? Well, one, you know, it's, it's in there. Prosperity knits a man to the world. Yeah. You're less willing to sacrifice because you have, you have more to lose. And so, you know, being willing to put everything out there makes you less willing to sacrifice. You're less willing to stand on principles that might necessitate sacrifice. Less right. willing to take a stand because you, again, you, you are in a position of significant loss now. While, while you, when you're, you know, in your late teens, um, even early 20s, before you've really established whatever you've set out to establish, you know, you can kind of say what you want to say and just move on from wherever you are. This is why they send 18 to 22 year olds to war. Yeah. Right? And, and, I and think again, and he talks about that right reason, later in this chapter. He says it is, is the idea of yeah, is the idea of how youth responds. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, so you're less willing to do that, and so it distorts this whole idea. This Christian hierarchy is a value. You know, when you talked, we said a second ago about death isn't death isn't our biggest fear or even our biggest concern right. in Christianity. There are there are a whole list of things that are more important to us than our, our lives. I mean, Scripture is clear about that. Right. Um, you know, just bringing glory to God is, is more important than our lives. Uh, working for the salvation other, of others is more important than my life. Uh, preserving the lives of others is more important than my life. Working for or preserving people, um, you know, trying to work towards their freedom, for example. I mean, the idea of even, of even dying to secure the liberty of others, of others is yeah. something that's absolutely worth giving life for. I and mean, noble, yeah. And it's noble. There's a whole list of things that are more important than holding on to our own lives. Right. And, you know, if, if no one was willing to make sacrifices, and every, what's the alternative to sacrifice? You know, stealing or, mm-hmm. or hoarding or making your life about you. Right. And if the whole world lived in that exact same manner, this would be it'd be a terrible place. It would be. It would be. You know, so so there's you know, and Christians living into that idea of, you know, it would have been, and I didn't see it, but it would have been a really sad thing if even during this pandemic, a priest was not willing to go and administer last rites in the hospital to a person that was under their care because they were afraid of contracting it. Right. That would have, and I didn't we were see it. we were not permitted to, by authorities. Uh, I was permitted to in one instance because it was a couple over at the hospital that you know about, the Enoses, which I got a nice letter from them today if they're watching. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, were, they permitted me to go, and I went. And I, you know, why wouldn't I? Mm-hmm. I'm willing to, you know, but, uh, but you're right. People that were afraid to go for fear of contracting an illness, it's like, wait a minute, what, what really is the most important thing here? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. and, and just to verify, you know, 
Again, it's not being cavalier. It's not pretending that, you know, spreading it wouldn't make it worse and not considering loving your neighbor. That's Mm -hmm. not what we're talking about. We're just saying, let's make the decisions we're making with the proper moral hierarchies or values in mind. Right. Right? That's all it is. This is interesting to me. Right here, um, that is why, this this is just so counterintuitive and so counter to what our culture says. That is why we must, this is uh, screw tape talking to Wormwood. That is why we must often wish long life to our patients. Hmm. 70 years is not a day too much for the difficult task of unraveling their souls from heaven and building up a firm attachment to the earth. Mm-hmm. That is so profound. Because we don't think that way. We, you know, we all think that you want to live a long life and that's, what the, that's the goal of here on earth. And, I don't, and that's just not true. No, because I mean, the quality of life has everything to do with right. it, right? I mean, the, the pitfalls, right? We talked about the pitfalls of adversity. I mean, not the pitfalls, the pitfalls of prosperity, but the ones of adversity, you know, ennui, right? That, just mm-hmm. that sense of um, meaninglessness or, or, you know, purposelessness, kind of like the fruits of nihilistic thought, which is like, why even be here and what's the point of anything? And let's just kind of, you know, work our way through. And that apparently, again, I'm, I'm 33, right? I haven't really experienced that middle-aged whatever that, that happens to be, but that's... You will. That's, oh, God willing, God right? willing. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that... And that idea of the um, dissatisfaction that comes from either comparing to your, yourself to some fictional account of where you should have been. Right. You know, um, which is, again, living in the past like you talked about before. Yeah. Or comparing ourselves to others. Isn't that something, though? As you get older, you begin to... Again, I think the middle-aged thing, which I, I guess it depends on that, that number probably moves, but I think it's at a point where you get to the point where you either you made it or you thought you should have made it, whatever that means, right, in terms of your career or what you thought you would do with your life. If you've gotten there, my, my dad, when he was 47, 46, right in there, retired at, at, with a golden parachute. They bought him out. And, uh, and he, he said to me once, my parents divorced right about the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually was glad to get out of it. But he said to me, you know, here I have spent my whole life working to get to provide for my children. He was born in Yonkers, New York, very poor. Work, work his way out of all that. He goes, I spent my whole life doing this, and for what? Yeah. And, and, so, and he actually had achieved what he wanted to achieve, and he was just like, this is just kind of, to what end, you know? It's not, it didn't actually make him happy. And, uh, and I think you can get to that point, or you can also get to the point of not getting what you thought you should have always had, and then be bitter. Yeah, right. and then make really poor decisions to get it, that's you know? Right. I mean, that's why what sports cars are all bought around that time, because like, you know what, I'm owed this. I have done this, and this is what I'm owed. That's why a lot of affairs happen at that point in life, is that's because, right. you know, I missed out, and I'm owed this. Um, I, think, I, I, I think, I know the, the time most affairs happen is actually the first, is actually during pregnancy. Of the first child. Yep. And then, but then after that, you know, it's middle age. It's, you know, like something, you know, I deserve whatever. I'm going to take whatever I have not achieved at this point that I'm owed. Right. And it's just, you know, again, that's, it's a, it's, it seems like a really treacherous time for people. It's a treacherous time. So, so again, any questions here? So the, um, hmm. Here's a, this is a good question. Question number two. Uh, what is it? This is actually a very good question. What is it about death that is terrifying? That's a very good question. As a Christian, if you're a non-believer, fine, because you're worried, what am I, what's going to happen? Where do I go? What does it even mean? You know, have I finished my life's work? All that sort of thing. Um, but if you're a Christian and you understand how Christianity works, what about death is terrifying? And the answer is actually nothing. Mm-hmm. But why is it that we as Christians are still so scared? You know, I think, I think some, and I didn't do any re- 
research on this, but I was just I was just thinking about that. What is what makes death terrifying? You know, I think for a lot of people, it's the idea of finality. You know, of yeah. ceasing to be, which yeah. is a Christian. You know, our our the entire faith is built on the idea of resurrection. So that's that's not a thing. Yeah. Um, leaving behind loved ones, I think, is really hard for people to yes. think of how how they how they're going to function without you there. Right. But you know. Giving, giving people credit, I think, and allowing the fact that, you know, like, they'll be okay and not making it about you and, you know, like, you actually wanting to be the ones to be with them. Right. And then I think another one, and there's, there's tons, I just kind of thought of three, was um, the end of potentialities. You know, once, I think what people really grieve, especially when a life is, feels like it's cut short, mm-hmm. is you, you start to think about all of the things that can never happen now. And when right. you grieve, and um, I've, I've actually heard a lot of, uh, people share this is what you grieve are all of the possible lives that could have been. So it's not even one life that you're grieving that never existed. It's all the possibilities. All the, possible, all the possibilities that could have happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's no and there if you grieve in that manner, there's no end in sight. There's nothing because there's an infinite possibilities of the life that was cut short. Right. And instead, you know, the Christian view of it is 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 no. This was the designated time. That's right. If God is in control, there were no potentialities beyond this point. Mm-hmm. You're grieving air. Does that make sense? At yeah, all? That's and so totally. I think, and so I think that that's that's another way that the Christian answer kind of views that. You know, this this these few verses from Philippians really talk about it when Paul is talking about his difficulties and he, and he says, you know, for me to live is Christ. This is Philippians uh, chapter one verses twenty one through twenty four. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I sh- which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire to depart and be with Christ, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is, that, that is far better. Mm-hmm. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You know, it's not that Paul there is desiring death. You know, some people desire death because it, life is just too much, right. and they can't take it a step further. They can't take it, But yeah. Paul isn't desiring death, he's desiring God and his fullness. Mm-hmm. You know, that, I think that's the, Christ, that's the Christian view as well. As long as I'm here, I can, I can work towards God. And when I die, experience him. When, when, the, when the time's up, the time's up. Yeah. yeah. So. And I have to say, I, I have been with people who have I've been around lots of people when they've been dying. And I've, I've known people that were very faithful Christians that were dying. They always call it actively dying, which I, I don't like that term. Mm-hmm. But people that are dying uh, on their deathbed, and I'm ministering to them. People that are Christians and, have, and believe that are at complete peace. I've also known people that were Christians, that were believers, that were terrified and actually felt bad. Mm-hmm. They were scared. And, they, weren't, and they, weren't, they hadn't lost their faith. They believed, but they were just, I guess, just the, uncert- the unknowing of what's going to, what it's going to be like. And uh, <laughs> I had somebody once say to me, Father, how do I, her name was Vivian Ott, may she rest in peace. I loved her. She said, Father, how do I make this happen? about dying, and I, and I said, Vivian, this is the one, oh no, she was a, like a socialite and had always planned things, and, mm-hmm. and she said, I'm not sure how I do this. I said, this is one thing, Vivian, you don't have to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> it was great, it was great. She, I, love, I loved her. But, I, but I've seen people that really are believers, that are you know, Christians, that do fear. Yeah. So I don't think it's, if you're, you, know, you fear it, that it makes you somehow not a legitimate Christian. No, I don't think so either. I don't think so, but I do think that fundamentally, Christians know we, we don't have to fear it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was, you know, we're, and, and we're, all, we're all fearful about that. You know, only one person has ever, well, there's a couple of people actually in Scripture, gone across there and come back to tell about it, right? That's a place where most people go, and you just don't know what's there. Right. You know, I mean, I, I, was, I was fearful the first time I went skydiving. You know, like, that's, 
with a pretty high chance of living through that, you know, but there's still anything that you haven't been through before. So I do think yeah, there's some probably. sensitivity to that concept too. You know, my, my um, grandmother's sister actually, I think it must've been 15 or 16, she was dying from cancer. And she asked me to come over and share those fears with me. Mm-hmm. I was a 15, 16 year old kid. I really didn't know what to, to do with the weight of that. But it was a, he was a Christian person just saying like, you know, like really having, having to do real wrestling with faith and really confronting it. Uh, which is really actually a healthy thing I to agree. do. I agree. I think so, too. So, um, anyway. All right. Any questions or comments from anybody out in the studio? Yes, thank you. All right. So, what's the, how about number 29? I'll let you, I'll let you read the uh, sure. summary on that one. And Let's see where we are. Right, oh, here we go. Also, oh, this is the shortest summary there is. All right, here, here we, we go. Two sen- one, sen- one sentence. Good on you. How'd you do that? One sentence. Uh, I think I ran out of time. Yeah. All right, so. <laughs> I don't want to say it. I sort of figured. The patient's town is now likely to be bombed. So in this letter, Screwtape advises Wormwood to stoke fear and cowardice in his patient, leading to necessary feelings of shame in order to drive the patient away from God. So this is the whole one about cowardice versus courage, this mm-hmm. letter. Um, that he has. Yeah, this one didn't resonate with me. I don't know why. I'm not, not knocking it. Oh, just, sure. Uh, did, you, did you resonate with you? Yeah, there's, there was a lot of stuff I thought that was interesting. Good. The first quote, the first quote was, uh, to be greatly, and this is actually from one of the first paragraphs, to be greatly and effectively wicked. Um, let me pull it up because I just lost it. Here we go. To be greatly and effectively wicked, a man needs some virtue. And it goes back to this theme of evil as a perversion of good. You right. know, the concept like, you know, lie, the best lies are 90% true. It's like you just want to change that one thing because yep. if you think about it, if a person only has, has no virtue at all, they would be selfish, cowardly, lazy, antisocial, cruel, covetous, mm-hmm. uh, aimless. You know, they, they, would, they would be really nothing. You know, I, not I, at all a threat. I think I know that guy. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know? I went to school with that yeah. guy. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. You know, and uh, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, like they're not motivated to do anything or be any. I mean, it's really, right. it's really what happens if you take seriously a nihilistic perspective of life. If you actually live that's into right. that worldview, that's kind of the result. Is the, again, the purpose is meaninglessness. But people like Stalin um, were driven. You know, pe- people, people who were truly cruel, Genghis, you know, Genghis, Genghis Khan. Khan, you know, like, like, like he had ambition. He had, he had things that he desired to accomplish. So again, it's that kind of mixture of virtue and vice that actually, that, that actually allows, you know, is, can allow for some really difficult and dangerous things. And the reason is because virtues are what equip us to live successful, purposeful, meaningful lives. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's why God calls us to live into them. Mm-hmm. We're built to live into them. Everything functions well. So the more virtuous we are, obviously that's going to be, you know, what really drives you. Um, right. Anyway. Well, that was interesting. And then this other part, actually, I thought about this for a long, a long time. Um, it was the idea of feeling hatred on the behalf of someone else. But identifying with somebody, on, um, having hatred on behalf of somebody else, but not being able to forgive on behalf of someone else. Hmm. I'm gonna, I just preface it. I'm going to read the quote. Okay. What, what, what paragraph are you in? Do you know? uh, I, I just took the quote. Okay. I don't have the book in front of me. It says, right. um, I think it, it's on the maybe third, uh, says, um, let him say, let the patient say, that he feels hatred not on his own behalf, but on that of the women and children. So again, it's a bombing scenario. People are dying. Let Let him say that he feels hatred not on his own behalf, but on that of the women and children. And that a Christian is told to forgive his own, not other people's enemies. 
In other words, let it consider himself sufficiently identified with the women and children to feel hatred on their behalf, but not sufficiently identified to regard their enemies as his own and therefore proper objects of forgiveness. And this is an amazing trap that I'd never thought about before. Hmm. There are no end to causes to get angry about or Hmm. to be outraged about or to feel solidarity with people about and, and therefore the people who perpetrate that to feel some collective group hatred toward. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these, you know, the, the, um, the news story of the, uh, the man who was killed uh, by the police officer putting his knee on his neck and suffocating him right. while he was crying out. I mean, that video was, was um, it was powerful. And it was, it was obviously something, some, you know, it was obviously wrong. Right. Uh, it was obviously sinful. Correct. It was obviously something to be upset about. But what happens in all of these collective moments, because we have a lot of them, is we're all kind of gathered together to hate whatever the system or institution or person is that causes these things, but we're not allowed to forgive, we're not, we're not allowed to forgive on someone else's behalf. Mm. Does that make sense? We can mm-hmm. hate on their behalf. Right. We just can't forgive on their behalf because that would mm-hmm. be overstepping. It reminds me a lot of the story in 2018. Um, this was the story, you probably remember this, the off-duty uh, Dallas police officer entered an apartment that she thought was her own, and she shot mm. the resident of that apartment. Uh, his name was uh, Botham Jean, who was unarmed, and, uh, you know, and killed him. And she was on trial. Her name was uh, Amber, uh, Amber Geiger, I think. And she was on trial, and during the trial, the, the brother, Brant, forgave her. And it was really powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, and he said, you know, I, I hope that you come to Christ, and I'm going I'm to pray for you, and I forgive you. And then the judge and gave her a hug, and then the judge came down, and gave the woman a hug and gave her a Bible and prayed with her, mm. uh, which was, and you know, and, and so it was interesting. You had two levels of backlash. You had, you had people getting angry at Brandt for forgiving her, right. saying, you know, <clears throat> you're betraying the cause or, or, you know, forgiveness is not absolution and which, which is valid in some senses, right? Like you still need to fix corrupt, corrupt things. Right. But then you certainly had people come out and hate on the, you know, hate the judge for offering forgiveness on somebody else's behalf. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so, I do. You know, so it's, it's, this, it's this kind of thing. What, what's, what really is hard for people is if you, it traps you in this place of having nowhere to go with your hatred. If you can't forgive, you don't have an outlet for, for the feelings of hatred that, that are within you. Right. Because you're not allowed to let those out. You're not allowed to, to do anything with them. Spe- you know, speaking of that, the hatred thing, he makes a comment here in paragraph one, two, three, uh, four, four rather. The more he fears, the more he will hate. Mm-hmm. So then, interesting. So I wonder, so you think about, you're talking about people that hated uh, the judge, for example, in that context. Why, what, what is the fear that causes someone to hate that judge? Is it the fear that Christianity might actually be true or transformative? Is it fear that maybe the person who hates the judge who is forgiving, that that person feels hatred because they're afraid that they can't also forgive? I don't know. It's interesting that for me to say, because I'm, I'm a big believer that when you experience something on the surface, you always want to go to the, like, the level below and find out what's actually causing that right, in your spirit. And for him to draw a parallel, which of course Lewis is correct, that fear and hatred are, are very, very high, highly correlated. You, you hate what you fear, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's... And, and it's pretty interesting. So when you hate something, we want to go, oh, that person, I hate that person. Well, wait a minute. Why, why do you hate that person so much? What, they, what, what threatens you about that? You know? I mean, you see this in politics all the time. I mean, you know, you see it in, you, both, on both sides. You see people that hate 
Trump and they, because they're afraid of him for whatever reason, people that hate Nancy Pelosi, for example, because mm -hmm. they're afraid of her, right? But so I think that the, just being able to name it, that you can, that, that hatred is actually caused by fear of that thing that you hate, is helpful, is helpful to think through, I think. Yeah, it's anyway. the old, uh, you know, nerd side coming out, it's the old Star Wars aphorism, right? Fear, was it? Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, you know, like that, that, whole, that whole concept. Um, you know, and, and the quote that he's pulling from that I got out of the hatred conversation, you know, uh, Screwtape says, hatred has its pleasures. It is therefore often the compensation by which a frightened man reimburses himself for the miseries of fear. You know, that's really fascinating to me. There's a, a famous psychologist who says, if you think tough men are dangerous, Wait until you see what weak men are capable of. Mm, that's a, that's for sure. You know, and it and it's a it's a terrifying concept because, you know, if weak you look at the weak profile, men are, weak men are fearful. Weak men are fearful, and so they compensate for that by by being hateful and right. vengeful. Right. I mean, you look at the profile of serial a lot of serial killers in the last century. They always felt like social outcasts. A lot of them were over mothered. Right. You know, and and were able to stand stand on which is own. terrible. Which is a terrible. And it, thing. it is. Yeah. It's an absolute tragedy. Yeah. They were insecure. And they had, they had, you know, because they, they became vengeful because they felt so powerless. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's, some, that's really something to consider, uh, you know, or you could say, you know, short man complex. It's not, that they're, it's not just that they're trying to prove to the world that they're tough, uh, prove to the world that they're tough. They're proving to themselves that they're tough. Because they're fearful that they're not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that, that of course, Christianity talks about we, we have nothing to fear, right? Because in a, a, for one reason, you're called to base your self-worth on God created you as you are, and God loves you. That's pretty much the end of it, right? Mm -hmm. So what would, if you are somebody who was born in a dysfunctional home, and of course, in some sense, we all are, mm -hmm. um, you know, that do you, and, and you're fearful that you might not be accepted because of something which happened to you as a child or something in your life, you could be fearful of that, and then that's going to make you hateful, right, and angry. Okay, it just does. It doesn't make you, a, doesn't make you a, somehow deficient, that's what happens with human beings. Yeah. But the solution then, of course, is that that fear, the way you get out of it is you forgive, Yeah. right? And you just recognize this is what I'm experiencing, I've forgiven that person, and the hate kind of goes away. Mm -hmm. It's a shame, there's nothing worse than, there's nothing more, I shouldn't say worse, nothing more sad, nothing sadder, than to find somebody who's really, really a hateful person because they're fearful. Yeah. It's terrible. Have you ever met someone like that? I have. Yeah, and it's just, and it's just I don't know, it's just, it's just, it, it, yeah, it, it's it's just really, it's just sad. But that's and why I, this whole idea of courage is, right. you know, kind of the antidote comes to that because, yeah. you know, courage and confidence, you know, they, lead to, they might lead to contempt or pity, but rarely to fear. You know, if a, if a 6'4", 260 pound person is going to come swing at me, you know, like, that's fearful and I'll be angry and vengeful and hateful. But, you know, if, if my three-year-old son is having a temper tantrum, you know, like I don't, yeah, I, you know, I don't feel fearful in that circumstance. You know, there's a different, there's a different way of approach. It elicits a very different reaction. You know, I may, I may, I may feel, you know, pity for him or compassion for mm -hmm. him, but it's just, you know, this idea of courage, the importance of courage, actually, is something that I thought was really fascinating about this chapter. Did you courage pick up on an, that thread? Courage is the courage is the antidote to fear. Yeah. 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 And 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 it's so important in the rest of our virtues. You know, he says this: courage is not simply one of the virtues but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means the highest point of reality. Right. A chastity or honesty or mercy, which yields to danger, will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful until it became risky. Right. Yeah, so courage is not, and courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being fearful and doing it anyway. Yeah. Right? 
Courage is not some manufactured, like, oh, I'm courageous and therefore I don't fear. That's silly. Everybody fears things. The, you, where courage is is when you fear something, but you do it anyway. You, you are willing to bear the consequence of that. That's what actually, as I could, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. Right? So Pilate's, for example, you know, he was fearful. Uh, he, he knew that condemning Christ to crucifixion was wrong. It was, un, it was unjust. But he did it because you could say, and he, Pilate was not a, 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 a weak person in terms of his military capacity, his capacity for cruelness. But where he, where he his uh, lack of courage was he failed to do what the right thing was when the cost became too high. Mm-hmm. Somebody, it was a great, famous, some war guy, military guy, who used to say that courage is fear that goes forward. No. Courage, okay. is, fe- courage is fear that charges forward. Mm-hmm. So it's like you just, you know it's difficult and scary, but you just go. It's pretty cool. It is cool. And, yeah. you know, courage is kind of bound up in this idea of sacrifice anyway, because the way that you overcome fear, even in, even in the midst of knowing full well what the costs are, is you say, I can bear this. I can bear this. And if you're a Christian and, and you know that God has you, right, you know then you can, about Then you control, can bear it. Then you can bear this. Right. You know, it's, it's easy, again, it, it's easy to be honest as long as it doesn't cost you anything. But as right. soon as your honesty costs you, it requires courage. And, and isn't and it fascinating, too, as a Christian, when you say, because of God's strength and love for me, I can bear this, even though on your own you can't, mm-hmm. but with God's power you can, mm-hmm. and then you do, you're able to, it teaches you once again mm-hmm. that God is faithful and that God is, can be relied upon. That's the Christian walk. Absolutely. So, so to question number three, what... What role does courage have in the Christian faith? You know, it's interesting. It's a big question. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, Matthew Matthew 16, uh, verses 24 through 25. Uh, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mm -hmm. For whoever would would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, that's that's the call to courage. We're, We're not to stumble blindly. We're to walk into... Again, these things with our eyes wide open. Uh, it takes, you know, it takes courage to love, because you have to sacrifice your self-protection. It takes courage to forgive, because then you're taking on the debt of others. It takes courage to, mm-hmm. again, speak truthfully, because you're risking standing or relationships. That's right. Uh, and 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 you know, got really the whole idea of bearing your cross is, um, you know, sacrifice your vision for what your life should be to me, and live into the in, live into what I have called you to. That's right. So good. Well, I think that about that hour, brings the, us to the time. The hour cometh and <laughs> exactly. draweth nigh. Yep. That's in scripture somewhere. I don't know where. Does anybody know where that is? Anyway, uh, any other further comments or questions? There must be five hundred people in this room, so it's hard to get everybody. So yeah, you anyway. win. That? No, I'm just kidding. So next week is our final week of our ten-week series on screw tape letters. It would be uh, the remainder of the book, which is chapters twenty-nine and thirty. I think, it might, I think it might just be 30 and 31. 30 and yeah, 31, you know. yeah. And then we'll maybe do a summary conclusion of all this and uh, wrap it up, and then we'll think what we're going to do next. So, um, Sounds good. I'm actually thinking about teaching a class on, uh, what I said I was going to do, the uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's right. That'd be That'd fun. That'd be awesome. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. So anyhow, do you want to close us in prayer? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Only Father, we thank you again for bringing us together. Uh, we thank you for the principles that you are, uh, from your word that we are learning about. I pray that you would find uh, 
Lord, that you would bring to our attention those things which are lacking, those things that you can work into us to allow us to uh, progress further into uh, growing, growing in virtue and, and growing closer to you. And we pray for everyone as our, our world begins to shift once again and we begin to open things up. We pray for everyone coming to church this Sunday.